It is so good to be with you. I'm so happy that uh, I can be here uh, bringing this word to you. Uh, when Pastor Jason, you know, it's been great getting to know Pastor Jason. Uh, he's become a great friend, uh, one that I can truly count on. So I count it an honor that he asked me to be here. When he told me a long time ago that he's going to put on this conference about the five solas, at first I was like really intrigued because that's something that's near and dear to my heart. And then when he asked me to speak, I was like just super delighted. I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. And then when he said uh, that my talk would be sola fide, I was perhaps uh, you could say overjoyed. Uh, I didn't think twice uh, about his invitation only because uh, truly this is one of my favorite topics. So I couldn't be more happy to be sharing this message with you. And I've been thinking about it for months. So uh, if, uh, we'll see uh, how long we go here. Uh, but I'm really excited. Uh, I'm really excited for tonight. And so you can turn to Galatians chapter three. We're, we'll camp out there. We're going to get there in a little bit. What I want to do uh, basically is I want to lay a foundation uh, for Sola Fide. Then we're going to kind of deconstruct it and then reconstruct it after that. And I th- hopefully that process will make sense to you. Uh, hopefully that'll speak to you in a, in a way that I think that will make this topic, this subject, this very important doctrine of faith alone, something that you can really go home and rejoice in. And that's, that's my particular goal for this evening. So you have likely heard of this phrase before, sola fide, it's Latin for faith alone. You know, very early on when I was, you know, a young lad in ministry, as they say, I was counseled by some older, wiser men to pick the right hill to die on, which I find to be really sage advice because I didn't want to always be, you know, falling on my sword for every single church thing that comes about. So find the right hills that you want to die on, the ones that you would not sacrifice for anything. And even though I'm still, I would say, young in ministry, I've very much learned that the hill of sola fide is the hill I'm most willing to die on. Hence, tonight's title, if you're one that wants to take notes and write a title down, mine is Dying and Living on the Slopes of Sola Fide. Because truly, I think that this is one of the most important doctrines. I'd also say it's one of the most misunderstood doctrines, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I would say that these misunderstandings, they manifest in a lot of different ways, mostly I would say through a lot of confused and frustrated people who come to church, this idea of justification by faith. And I would say, I would submit this evening that I think that there's, and maybe I'm just biased because this is my topic, but I, I think there's no more urgent belief that the church of America needs to recover, the church of the world, than the belief that they are justified by faith unconditionally freely. I think if the church recovers that, there's nothing stopping it. And indeed, there's nothing that can stop the church. Jesus says that to us in Matthew 16. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But I would say like the beloved Martin Luther, he agrees in somewhat with me. He says, quote, if this article, the article of justification by faith stands, the church stands. And if this article collapses, the church collapses. Indeed, it's a very serious matter when we're discussing the manifestations and the particulars of faith. And I would say the stakes couldn't be higher. Whenever this topic is broached, the matter of faith alone is a matter of eternal significance. 
And every time it's discussed, I would say this, that souls are on the line. When someone is getting up and talking, and maybe they're going to Romans chapter 4, or they're going to some other passage in Scripture, and they're talking about faith. Hebrews 11 is a great one, as was read this evening. And they're talking about faith and what it means. It is so important that they get faith right because it is the only suitable answer to the question of heaven. Perhaps you're familiar with D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion. So you're likely familiar with this scenario. It's one that's probably very, uh, you, you're used to hearing. But let's say, God forbid, tonight is the night of your departure from this earth. You die tonight. And you are greeted with this uh, amazing vista of heaven. And as you're walking up to the pearly gates, you see St. Peter stationed there. He's checking people's uh, sort of merits as they go through the gates. It's a very uh, imaginary scenario, but let's just, just roll with it. St. Peter's there. He's checking, checking to see whether you are allowed in, checking to see whether you belong. And he asks you that question. Why should you be led into this place? Why should you be let in to the place of the king, the heavenly kingdom of Christ? On whose merits are you counting on to grant you entrance? What would you say to that question? How would you answer this scenario? I would submit to you that I think any other answer other than the answer of sola fide is entirely wrong. Any other answer is completely false. Faith alone is the only answer to the question of eternity. It's the only answer that gets you in, I could say. Precisely because the whole entire construct of faith alone is appealing to someone else's merits. Appealing to someone else's ability and accomplishments and finished accomplishments, I could say even that. Faith alone inherently is appealing to someone else, capital S, capital E, someone else for you. You see, I think our natural instinct, if we're asked that question, why should you be let in? Our natural instinct is to answer with some semblance of because I, because I believe this, because I've done this, because of whatever if any of your answers start with, because I, you are wrong. Sola fide answers that question of eternity with the only answer that is allowable. It's the answer that begins with, because he. Because of what he did. Because he lived perfectly. Because he died victoriously. Because he spilled his blood freely for me. Because he resurrected triumphantly for me. Because of him. All of those questions regarding my spot in the afterlife. Regarding my spot in eternity. Were already answered 2,000 years ago. That's your hope in sola fide. They were already answered. Because he paid that price. The price for your sins. And the price for my sins. And the sins of the whole world. Sola fide takes Jesus at his word. When, when he says in John 19 verse 30. That it is finished. We believe that wholeheartedly. It is finished. My spot in glory is secured. My spot in heaven is settled because of him. That's faith alone. In a nutshell, that's sola fide. That's what we're talking about. 
One writer puts it this way, that faith looks away from oneself and trusts only in what Christ has done. That's what it is. It's not looking at our righteous works, not looking at our good deeds, not looking at the ways that we think our life is put together. It's looking away from all that, and it's looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, as we read this evening. Which is just to say that your entry into heaven, again, to carry on that scenario, has actually nothing to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with you, and that's the whole point. Your access to glory is granted to you, I would say even better, gifted to you because of someone else. And perhaps at this point, you're amening. With all of this, you're agreeing with all this, all of these things you're agreeing with. And I have no doubt that if we took maybe a survey, we could say, you would say yes in affirmation to faith alone, unquestionably, enthusiastically. You would agree with something like that. You would agree with everything perhaps I've just said. And yet, even still, I would say that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the most important doctrine the church needs to recover precisely because I think a lot of times, even though we say that we believe it, we don't live like we believe it. I think sometimes, actually, let me just ask this. If you were to have your religious life, your Christian life, your Christianity studied, put under a microscope, would what you say you believe line up with how you live? Honestly. Because in my experience, which I've been in church my whole life, <laughs> my grandfather was a pastor for 50 years. My dad has been a pastor since the late 90s. I've, I always like to say I grew up in Sunday school. <laughs> it's just part of my DNA. <laughs> I've been around a lot of churches, a lot of church folk. And I would say in my experience, we are very quick to affirm, yes, I believe in fa- salvation by faith alone in theory. And yet in practice, we almost deny it by how we live. We live almost completely denying this idea that we are justified freely, unconditionally because of Christ. The spiritual lives of a lot of churchgoers, if you were to examine them, look as if they're living as if their salvation is on their shoulders. They're living as if their justification is riding on them doing something that's unsettled, that's unfinished. That there's this almost persistent anxiety that people have. This almost permanent grimace on people's faces when they walk into church thinking that there's something they have to do that was left undone by Christ. Maybe you've seen that grimace in church. It's almost a permanent fixture on the church's face that seems to suggest that there's a a, a modicum of doubt that the gospel is true. Did the cross really work? Did it? See, we would say, maybe you're scared that I even asked that question. And yeah, we, we would never perhaps be caught dead saying such a thing, but yet our lives sometimes say it for us. Sometimes the way we live is almost antithetical to the cross, antithetical to the empty tomb, antithetical to the whole idea that Jesus died and rose for our justification, and it is settled. Our default setting, and I know this because I speak from experience, is one of performing. I want to perform my Christian life. 
I want to be able to look at very objective things and say, look, I've accomplished this and this. This is how you know I'm a Christian. This is how you know I'm in. This is how you know I'm a part of the family of God. And I think all of that is well and good. But I also say all of that is proof positive that Satan's greatest lie has taken root, taken hold. You know what Satan's greatest lie is? It's not that God doesn't exist. That's not his greatest lie. Actually, the Bible calls anyone who believes that there is no God a fool. Satan doesn't believe there is no God. You know what Satan's greatest lie is? It's that Jesus didn't save you all the way. That's his greatest lie. That he didn't do everything necessary for your justification, for your salvation, for your glorification with him forever. His greatest lie is getting into the way and actually making you think that there's a, there's a small little space there at the end that you have to fill. There's a small little one yard line we could say, Jesus got you 99 of the yards, you have to go the extra one. You have to finish it. You have to make sure. You have to do something else, something more, something extra. If, and especially if you want to stay a Christian. If you want to stay a part of the family of God, then boy, like that song that Nat King Cole sings, you better straighten up and fly right. That's our default setting. There's something left undone. There's something left unfinished. And again, maybe we would never say those things, but we live this way. We live under the pressure of having to perform something left unfinished instead of the joy of sola fide, the joy of knowing that it is all finished. Grimacing Christians are Christians that don't believe that their salvation was done, that there's something left that they need to do. And I would say such is why we are desperate for another reformation. (laughs) We can have revival, and revivals are good. Well, I think more important than any of that, we need a reformation. A reformation starts with the church. It starts with us here in these pews. It starts with people and the churches all over the place realizing that everything they need is in the Word. That's what we need. We need... Doctrinal reform, we need reform that takes hold, that takes root in the lives of churchgoers. One writer put it this way, we need these solas just as much today as the reformers needed them in the 16th century. And these aren't doctrines of a bygone era. They're not something that were just important only for a specific season, only for a specific time in history. They are more important today, I would say, than ever before. And if you don't believe me, here's an example. In 2009, the New York Times ran an article. They were profiling the then, at that time, recent reintroduction of indulgences in the Catholic Church on a very broad scale. And an indulgence, of course, according to Catholic doctrine, is, quote, a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, of course, after you meet a lot of conditions. This New York Times article went on to sort of profile the ways in which this announcement of indulgences since the year 2000 has affected the church, has affected uh, confession and church attendance. 
With one particular church official quoted as saying that a full indulgence could be obtained, note this, by a significant contribution of works of a religious or social nature. Which is just to say, they are pitting forgiveness with a bevy of conditions. This is not language from the 1600s. This is not language that Martin Luther was trying to refute. This is language from the year 2000. There's still, yes, even today, a crusade to keep our works and our faith so intertwined as we march onward toward Zion. We, we want to fill that extra space. We want to have some part to play. We want to have something that we can say, look at what I have done, what I have earned. Listen to how one Catholic website defines indulgence. And just listen, uh, this is a little bit longer, but just listen how they describe how you can get, quote, a partial or a plenary or a full indulgence. Listen to the ways in which you have to do this. Quote, to gain a partial indulgence, you must perform with a contrite heart the act to which the indulgence is attached. To gain a full or plenary indulgence, you must perform the act with a contrite heart. Plus, you must go to confession, receive Holy Communion, and pray for the Pope's intentions. The final condition is that you must be free from all attachment to sin, including venial sin. If you attempt to receive a plenary indulgence but are unable to meet the last condition, a partial indulgence is received instead. I want to say, oh my goodness, who can live up to that? All those conditions that weigh on a soul who is looking to be forgiven. Who is looking to be assured that they are absolved. Yet they're being told all of these rights, all of these things that they have to do. The church, my friends, is desperate for the message of faith alone. And I would say though, it's not just the Catholics. A few years ago, a prominent evangelical theologian, who I shall not name, but if you want to ask me later, I will tell you, <laughs> posted this piece online, an article online, that began with this headline that really grabbed my attention. He said, quote, If you don't want God more than anything else, you are not a Christian. Which I found to be hard to jive with. Because I want to want God more than anything else. But sometimes there's times that I don't want God. Because I'm a sinner. I still sin. Sin is wanting something more than God. He has just pitted a, an impossible mev, uh, level, an impossible measure on Christians who struggle. And that's everyone. And in the years since, the same pastor has reinforced this idea Leaning into this notion, this doctrine that he has called final justification. As if once we get to glory that there's something that we have to present to God that gets us in. That Jesus' justification gets us some of the way. But there's this thing called final justification. That when we walk up to Peter, uh, we could say, if you go back to that earlier analogy. We have to be able to present something that confirms that this other justification was true and good and complete. Which again, pits everything on you. Pits everything on your shoulders. Pits everything on your ability to finish something left unfinished. One of 
Another of these articles said that if you have a pet sin, quote, you must renounce it at once. Your salvation depends on it. Again, these are not words from some way, way far out unorthodox guy, unorthodox preacher. They are come from one we would know that is esteemed, that is respected. And again, that's why I'm so alarmed. Because there are preachers everywhere, churchgoers everywhere, I would say, who are being duped and deceived into thinking that their spot in heaven is up to them. It's on their shoulders Can you imagine living with that weight? Can you imagine living with that burden and that pressure that that spot and glory that you hope is yours is up to you doing something, up to you finishing something? Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe that's where you're living tonight. My friends, sola fide, faith alone, bursts that bubble completely. It detonates, we could say. Any notion that we have anything to do with our salvation at all. Which brings me, at last, maybe you're sighing in relief, to Galatians 3. Which allows us here to see Paul, I would say, at his most spirited. I love the Apostle Paul and his writing. And I would say that if he were alive today and were seeing what was going on in churches across these United States in the modern church of the modern era, this is the letter he would write. I think he would write Galatians 2.0 or maybe he would just reprint Galatians and just give it to the church. As you might know, in Galatians, Paul is writing to a group of churches who had become inundated by this other group of teachers known as the Judaizers who had infected this church like a plague. And their message was a simple one. Actually, it was more more complex, though, than the plan of salvation because they said salvation is not by faith alone. It's by faith and obedience. They pitted the two together. That's what these teachers were going around from church to church everywhere. They were telling anyone who would listen, anyone who would allow them to preach, that they had to add works to their salvation. Especially if they wanted to stay saved. Faith wasn't enough by itself. Those who wanted to be justified were bound then by these guys' doctrine to keep the law on top of it. Paul, of course, throughout Galatians, takes great issue with this idea, boldly writing against any notion that our works, our works, even, yes, of the law, have anything to do with justification, as he says in Galatians 2, actually, verse 4. And that because, he says, of false brethren, of unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty... Which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may they might bring us into bondage. According to Paul, these guys who had come into the church who were trying again to marry works and faith as if it's all up to us, weren't doing anything other than accomplishing one thing, putting believers who had liberty back into slavery. He says that actually in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Again, he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. 
And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is his message. They're coming in and telling you it's on you and things that you have to do. He's saying that's bondage. That's slavery. And in so doing, he would go on to say, you're losing Christ. You're falling away from grace. Notice Galatians 5 verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Strong words from the Apostle Paul. If you're trying to merit glory, if you're trying to merit your way into heaven by works of the law, it's not just one thing you have to keep. You have to keep all of them. And you don't have to just keep all of them. You have to keep them all perfectly, 100% perfect, 24-7. No exceptions, no ifs, no ands, no buts. There's no rule that gets you out of that standard. This is Paul's assertion. You have to do it, and you have to do it perfectly. You're debtors to the whole law. It says, by trying to do it that way, you've effectively made Christ nothing. You've negated the whole idea of Christ, Paul says. Which then, this is his primary burden, is to speak to these believers who have been, we could say, seduced by these Judaizing teachers. Notice Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish Having, been, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? In the span of three verses, if you want to get a little hint at Paul's animation towards this church. In the span of three verses, he's called them fools twice. <laughs> How could you be so unwise? How could you be so blind? How could you be of such little understanding that you would be charmed by such teaching. You've been seduced. You've been beguiled. You've been bamboozled, Paul says. Into this idea that their justification could be merited by them, by their works of the law. Paul says this is categorically untrue. Again, verse 3, are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Do you think that what was first gifted to you freely by the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the Word can now be maintained and managed and adequately perfected by you and your performance and your doing and all of that? That's his question. To which I would insert maybe a by no means, as Paul is oft saying. By no means, you can't do it. A sinner's justification has always come solo fide. Always. 
from now all the way back to the beginning of time. It's always been by faith in the promise of God. That's how sinners have always been justified. This is Paul's argument in verses 4 through 9. Notice as he says, he says, Even yes, that beloved father Abraham, who had many sons, even he was saved by faith. Notice verse 4. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you in the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Even that great patriarch of the faith that all of Israel looked to, longed to, and had so much hope in. Even, yes, he was made righteous by faith. And those who would say that they are sons of Abraham are such, as here Paul says, only as they believe in what Abraham believed by faith. This is Paul's point, the whole point of it all. There is no such thing as working your way into this blessing. You can't work your way into it. You can't obey your way into a right standing with God. That's impossible. You and I have zero, zero, nils, nada ability to justify ourselves. We can't do it. The works of the law cannot be your ticket into heaven. Nor were they ever meant to be. Go to Galatians 2 verse 16. Paul states this so explicitly. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For, and if you didn't get the point earlier, he says it again. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Your works can't do it. They can't measure up. They can't meet the standard of the law. Not even close. So what's our hope? What's the hope of sola fide? Well, Galatians 3.11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, Paul says. It is evident for... And he quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. My friends, the hope and the joy and the delight and the rejoicing of faith alone is because the cross worked. The cross, it worked. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to question it. The cross, everything there was done. It was finished. Jesus declared it. He became the curse, taking all of your sins on him. That we might be cleared from all of that. 
And by faith, we believe, just as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. It's solely by faith. Sola fide is our hope, is our plea, is our joy. Forever. From now and forever. From now till the end of time, our hope is sola fide. One of my favorite Writers from Scotland in the 1800s, Horatius Bonar. He says this, quote, The things that Christ did not do were laid to Christ's charge, and he was treated as if he had done them all, so that the things that he did do are put to our account, and we are treated by God as if we had done them all. Period. That's faith. Christ was treated as a transgressor, as it says in Isaiah 53. He was counted among the wicked. Why? So that you and I might be accounted among the righteous. He's the someone else which our faith is joined to. He's the one who gets us in and keeps us in forever. There's no doubting. If you believe by faith that your sins have been cleared and you are justified in the sight of God because of Christ, that is true for you forever. Period. That's the only thing you have to appeal to when you get to those pearly gates. Because he... Well, maybe you say, what about Hebrews 12, 14? What about where it says that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord? What does that mean? Well, in short, it's not referencing a holiness that's inherent to you. Because you have no holiness that's inherent to you. (laughs) Especially, too, because in that same letter, just a few verses up, Hebrews 12, 10, the same writer says that you are partakers of his holiness. So we could just nix that doubting verse. Well, what about, what about James 2.18 where he says, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. That's always the one that comes in that leads to doubt, that leads to some unsettlement. Surely there's something left for me to do. James says so. Well, in short, what James has in mind is how we appear righteous before men, not how we appear righteous before God. What Paul has in mind here in Galatians and elsewhere throughout the Bible is something very particular. Your justification before God. How you are made right in his sight. That's what he says in verse 11. But that no man is justified in the law, by the law in the sight of God. It's impossible. So let me say there's no contradiction. Let me say there ought to be no confusion ever. The scripture is crystal clear as it always has been. There is only one righteousness that merits both a right standing before God and an unbridled, unfettered entry into the courts of heaven. It's the righteousness that it says in Matthew 3.15 that Jesus came to fulfill. It's the righteousness which comes from canceled sin. There's only one person Who's powerful enough, strong enough, righteous enough to cancel sin forever. And guess what? That person is not you. You can't cancel sin. You can't even conquer it in your own life. This is 
The very thing that Paul came to, the very heartbreaking reality that Paul came to in Romans chapter 7. Who will save me from this body of death? I can't do it. I can't conquer sin. The things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. How can this be? How can I get on? There is only one conqueror of sin. And it's not you. It's Christ alone. He has vanquished sin forever by taking it in himself. Taking it on himself at that cross, that cruel, wicked cross, which has become the emblem of our hope and our joy and our peace. Martin Luther says this, quote, In Christ all sin is vanquished, killed, and buried. In righteousness remains a conqueror and reigns forever. We are more than conquerors, yes, Romans 8.37, but not because we have killed our pet sins, not because we have conquered any amount of sin in our own life. We are more than conquerors because we lay a hold of Christ the conqueror by faith, by sola fide, and that is our justification, and that is our glorification. That is the way in which we walk through those pearly gates, and we can look in the face of Jesus and know that all is settled forever that is our assurance that is our hope that is our plea that you are made a child of God and that you are kept a child of God entirely because of Christ entirely by faith that's the one thing I never want anyone to leave a church in which I'm presented the opportunity to preach I don't want anyone to ever leave doubting if Jesus was enough. My friends, he did everything for you. And you are cleared. You are saved because of him. And he offers that freely for you on the cross. When he was hanging there with nails piercing his hands and blood dripping down his body. He was saying, I have forgiven you once for all. There's nothing doubting in that picture. There's nothing left undone. Sinner. This is your plea. This is your answer. This is your justification. It's there for you by faith. Come and receive Christ's righteousness by faith. It's the only righteousness you will ever need. And it's yours. Held out to you. As a gift. And the only thing that opens that gift is faith. My friends, your hope, your plea, your joy is sola fide, now and forever. Let us pray.